Hi, this is uh, Dr. Pedro Ramirez, Editor-in-Chief of the International Journal of Gynecological Cancer. And today I have the great pleasure of uh, uh, introducing Dr. Ramez Eskender, who is at the University of uh, California, San Diego, Rebecca, and John Moore's Comprehensive Cancer Center in La Jolla, California. And the reason for this podcast is the recent publication on this landmark study published in the New England Journal of Medicine, titled Pembrolizumab Plus Chemotherapy in Advanced Endometrial Cancer. Ramez, thank you so, so much for accepting our invitation and uh, for your time in discussing this article with us. Thank you, Pedro. Thank you for the kind invitation. Uh, we're all very excited about this data, and it's really a pleasure to be here uh, as part of this podcast and honestly, a, a tremendous journal with, with great impact and outreach. So thank you. Thank you so, so much. Um, so, you know, as I mentioned before, we have uh, lots of questions and uh, definitely uh, hope to get through all of them. Um, I wanted to start, Ramez, with uh, the question. Um, this was actually from one of our fellows in the journal, Andrea Rosati from um, uh, Italy. And he asked um, the efficacy of the combination between cytotoxic chemotherapy and pembrolizumab um, especially in MMR proficient populations, seems to be the ability of chemotherapy to potentially turn cold tumors into hot tumors. So tumors that are much more susceptible to, to immunotherapy. Can you, can you give us some insights concerning this synergistic interaction? Yeah, of course. It's a great question. And a big part of the, the reason we designed the trial the way we designed it with two separate cohorts of the DMMR and the PMMR was precisely related to this, meaning the DMMR, we have very strong biologic rationale about why immunotherapy in combination with standard of care chemo would be effective. In the PMMR population, it was a hypothesis that we still had to test. There is a lot of preclinical data looking at synergy between cytotoxic chemotherapy and immunotherapy. And the premise is that immunogenic cytotoxic chemotherapy can augment a response in a tumor that would otherwise not respond to checkpoint. We know that if you look at prior immunotherapy studies in the mismatch repair proficient endometrial cancer, recurrent patients, of course, the response rate was about 12%, some much more modest, 3%. And so here, when you see that you're trying to drive a response, you're basing it on the fact that the cytotoxic chemotherapy may increase immunogenic antigen presentation. It may increase dendritic cell activity, and there's hypothesis about why that's uh, the case via STAT6 pathway inhibition. Increase in the suppression of myeloid-derived suppressor cells, so you're revving up this immune microenvironment. And the reality is it's different for different chemotherapy drugs. There's some great publications, uh, actually, that looked at whether or not cytotoxic chemotherapies are all identical when it comes to driving this hypothesis, and we don't feel like they are. But I will qualify that with a caveat that preclinical data doesn't always equate, of course, as we know, to what happens biologically in, in human trials. And another big part of this is that we saw efficacy in this manner in lung cancer and in head and neck cancer. So we've already established this paradigm of chemotherapy augmenting or improving response to immunotherapy in what we would consider an immunologically cold tumor and that was really the hypothesis that drove this design in GY018. Fantastic. And Ramiz, that actually brings us to, to the next question, also by one of our fellows, Teresa Pan from Austria. And, and I think you alluded to a little bit, 
Um, and her question is, given these synergistic effects, do you think that it really depends on what type of chemotherapy uh, we use or, or it, it's just a general cytotoxic effect? Yeah, I, I think it does depend on the chemo drugs used. Um, of course, to validate that, we would have to design a trial that we probably wouldn't design looking at various combinations. And again, it's based on preclinical data. But if you look at the preclinical data, both carboplatin and paclitaxel have divergent immune stimulatory mechanisms that are hypothesized to occur within the microenvironment of the tumor. So I don't think I can definitively answer and say, well, you know, with chemo A versus B versus C, we know exactly what it would do, but we do have some information that's uh, guiding the combination that was chosen. And of course, in this setting, it was convenient for us also because carboplatin and paclitaxel are the chemotherapy backbone that we use in endometrial cancer as is. So mm -hmm. it's not as if we had to then validate the safety of using a different chemo combination. Great. So now let's uh, let's talk about this particular trial. Um, tell us a little bit about the trial design and, and what were your inclusion and exclusion criteria? Of course. So this was a prospective uh, international blinded and placebo-controlled phase three trial. Uh, we looked specifically at enrollment of patients who had measurable stage three or stage four A. So if you had a patient who either had primary surgery um, and had stage three disease or 4A, they had to have resist defined measurable disease afterwards to enroll on trial. Any patient who had stage 4B disease, either primarily surgically resected or recurrent disease could enroll whether they had measurable tumor or non-measurable tumor. In addition, we enrolled essentially all histologies except for carcinosarcomas or sarcomas. And then, and lastly, ECOG performance status of zero, one, and two. We elected and uh, allow for an ECOG two to enroll in this trial, which I think was informative. And then perhaps uh, the part of this that's most relevant too is that we really designed two separate trials in one because in the trial design, <clears throat> excuse me, we intentionally asked this question in the mismatch repair deficient population by central IHC and local and in the mismatch repair proficient. And the statistical design of the trial was intended to do so completely independently because of what we hypothesized to be the magnitude of benefit in these two populations. Great. And that, that's perfect. And getting us to the next question. And uh, as, uh, as you know, there are many patients who, who listen to our podcast as well. Can you just tell our audience why is it important to evaluate outcomes these days, separating mismatch repair deficient and proficient patients? I think in this setting, the, the reason it's very relevant in the context of this trial is we've already established that mismatch repair deficiency, in addition to other things like tumor mutational burden high, microsatellite instability high, are predictors of response to immunotherapy. And we know that because we have FDA approvals in the recurrent setting with immunotherapy in mismatch repair deficient solid tumors. So if we know that we have a biomarker that's predictive of response, then we don't want to dilute our ability to really investigate efficacy in a biomarker negative patient. And so for that reason, the, the desire from a design a, a trial design standpoint, as well as interpretation, is let's consider these populations completely independently so that mm -hmm. we can really define the benefit of the intervention. And so in the DMMR, where we have this biomarker, we're analyzing those patients alone and that way, when we analyze the PMMR population, which we did in GY018 uh, and presented and published, we can really say, we know that this is being driven in the PMMR patients. It's not being artificially uh, augmented by the DMMR if we lump mm -hmm. them together. 
Fantastic. Um, tell us a little bit more about the, the treatment regimen and duration on, on this trial. So the, the study was designed so that patients who are randomized were randomized to carboplatin and paclitaxel. Six cycles was a standard. Carboplatin was dosed at an AUC of five. And then we added pembrolizumab or placebo with chemotherapy. And it was given every three weeks to co coincide with the chemotherapy administration every three weeks for six cycles. And then we did 14 cycles of maintenance therapy with either pembrolizumab or placebo every six weeks. So total duration of treatment of two years. Um, we did write into the protocol that if a patient was enrolled with resist measurable disease and they had a partial response or stable disease after six cycles of chemo, they could extend the cytotoxic chemo for up to 10 cycles at the discretion of the uh, principal investigator and the study team. So they had to reach out to us to request continuation if they met criteria. There's a very small population of patients that did that. Um, so most of the patients enrolled, the vast majority, six cycles of cytotoxic chemotherapy in combination with Pembro or placebo every three weeks, and then maintenance for 14 cycles every six weeks. Very well. And uh, the primary and secondary outcomes? Primary endpoint was investigator-assessed progression-free survival. Secondary outcomes were overall survival, objective response rates, quality of life parameters that were assessed throughout therapy to ensure that there was no decrement in quality of life. And then we had some translational outcomes of interest that are actively being investigated currently, such as the uh, mode in which you lose mismatch repair, either mm -hmm. genetic mutation versus epigenetic alteration, and whether that portends a difference in response in the DMMR uh, patient population. And then we had some other exploratory secondary endpoints from a translational research perspective. Okay. So let's get to the results. What did you find? What are some of the highlights you like uh, our audience to, to remember from this study? I think uh, really the most salient is that the efficacy signal in the mismatch repair deficient population, the median progression-free survival in the pembrolizumab treated DMMR patients was not reached versus uh, 7.6 months in the mismatch repair uh, deficient treated with placebo. Uh, that hazard ratio was 0 0.30. So that's a 70% reduction in the risk of disease progression or death, which is a fairly dramatic uh, mm -hmm. difference, of course. And if you look at 12 months, uh, there was 74% of patients treated with pembrolizumab who were mismatch repair deficient or without evidence of disease progression or death versus 38% in the placebo arm. Um, and I will say one thing that uh, I, I should bring up, I think it's important, is that we also built in unblinding at progression as part of the clinical trial because of approved therapies in both patient populations. And so we will be reporting efficacy data and subsequent therapy data in these patients. In okay. the PMMR patient population, the efficacy data was also very robust. And to be honest, it, it surprised us a little bit when we saw the DSMC review, the hazard ratio was 0.54. So a 46% reduction in the risk of disease progression or death in the mismatch repair proficient uh, patient population. It's really provocative for us, highly significant. And it was uh, the delta in those was 13.1 months in the pembrolizumab arm versus 8.7 months in the placebo arm. And if you look at the morphology of those curves in both the publication and the presentation, the, it's interesting because the shape, they diverge and they stay divergent all the way to the tails. Uh, they don't appear to converge at all. So for me, you know, biologically, again, we go back to the hypothesis that we discussed, is this cytotoxic chemo helping in these biomarker negative patients? And it appears that it did. So we're excited about the data. 
Um, it is important to know that the data was presented at the first interim efficacy analysis because it met the threshold as defined in the statistical analysis plan. So the median follow-up is shorter than what you might anticipate in a trial of this size, but we are continuing to, uh, again, of course, look at the data, events are occurring, and that will be, again, shared in future uh, Congresses and meetings. Yeah. And then the last important part is that we didn't see any increase in adverse events, and that was important for us because we're combining immunotherapy and chemotherapy, and we didn't see an increase in either chemotherapy-related side effects or immunotherapy-related side effects that we saw in other phase two single-arm trials, which was very reassuring. That's fantastic results. And uh, I um, wanted to follow up with you because uh, some of these are now getting into some of the questions from, from our fellows. And I think you, you alluded to a little bit. Uh, one of the questions was the medium follow-up uh, was 12 months in the MMR deficient and eight months in the MMR proficient. Do you think this follow-up is long enough to uh, draw conclusions long-term? Yeah, it's an excellent question. And I think uh, what, you know, we could, we could become very, um, prescriptive about what it means in terms of statistical inferences. Mm -hmm. The reality is, you know, we had a pre-specified interim efficacy analysis, and it was defined as when accrual was completed to both patient populations, and we had at least half of the information fraction, half of the events that were needed. And we met that at the interim efficacy analysis. And of course, that triggered the pre-specified statistical evaluation, which showed these findings. The truth is that you're going to have censored events in a progression-free survival curve. And as you follow these patients out further, those censored events are going to turn into real events. They're not going to be censored anymore. And that may affect the median progression-free survival point estimate. But the hazard ratio, which is the shape of the curve over the entirety of the study, you're not really going to see a very big difference in that. And that's why the hazard ratio of 0.54 is provocative, because even if that migrates to 0.57, or 0.58 as a hazard ratio, because the point estimate changes, it's still a 30 to 40% reduction or 40 to 50% reduction in the risk of disease progression in the PMMR patient. So yes, a point estimate may evolve as you see more evolution of censored events with longer follow-up, but the hazard ratio is likely going to stay very close to where it lives currently. And I think that speaks to the strength of the data and how strong the signal was. Absolutely. Uh, and, and another point that you uh, uh, briefly touched upon with regards to the results, uh, this question comes from Giulio Bonaldo. He's in uh, in Milan, Italy, and um, he writes, uh, results in the uh, proficient MMR cohort are surprising with a 46% lower risk of disease progression in patients treated with pembrolizumab. Uh, considering previous trials showed only modest improvement in this population, um, the efficacy curves in the two MMR cohorts separated early during the treatment and preserve that separation throughout. Why do you think this is happening? Yeah, it's a great question. I think this is exactly why we did the trial, because our hypothesis is that we could drive some degree of immunogenicity. Not all solid tumors are the same. Uh, we haven't been able to replicate that in studies that have read out to date, for example, in ovary cancer with Imagine 050. But do we are is endometrial cancer for some reason a different disease? Um, and it may be. And what's interesting is that in those PMMR patients, 25% were serous endometrial, 5% were clear cell. And we also see that the, the duration of, you know, when we look at these curves, we see the preservation. So in my mind, it's a reflection of confirmation of our initial scientific hypothesis. Now we are going to hopefully be able to do some additional translational work within the PMMR patients on that study and use the tissue that was collected to help inform 
platform? Is there something else that we can use to inform responses in the PMMR patients to help uh, strengthen our understanding of why these patients responded? My hope is that I'll be able to come here you know, in a year or 18 months and we can have a conversation about that. Uh, but for now, we have a more discovery that should, should certainly be done. Absolutely. You're always welcome back. Uh, this, this actually is a perfect segue to the next question. Uh, Julio Bonaldo also asked, um, you did a subgroup analysis. And, and which subgroups uh, do you think have the most promising benefit here? And, and um, given these uh, really impressive results, uh, who do we focus on moving forward? Yeah, it's it's always an interest of ours to try to enrich for responses in patients because we have to be thoughtful about the treatment intervention and the proposed benefit. What's interesting is if you look at the, the uh, forest plots that were published in the supplement of the manuscript, you can see that almost universally it favored chemotherapy plus pembrolizumab in both the DMMR and the PMMR populations. And I think, again, that speaks to the strength of the data. Um, we, we saw what looks like a benefit throughout. Again, prior radiation, yes or no, a benefit in both of those populations. Primary metastatic disease versus recurrent disease, a benefit in both populations. Prior adjuvant therapy, yes or no, a benefit in both populations. So, and it's a large study. I, I didn't mention it earlier. We had 225 DMMR, 591 PMMR. And so these are very big numbers for us to be able to truly define these subsets. Um, some of the cohorts were quite small in number. So you have a very wide confidence interval. So it makes it more difficult to inform. But right now it looks like Every one of those independent patient courts we looked at appeared to benefit from the combination of Pembro plus chemo versus placebo plus chemo. Great. Um, this question comes from Vanza Kosciavili. She's in Georgia. Um, and her question is, um, in the subgroup analysis, should we be looking specifically at pdl one status? Does this help us in making a decision about treatment on these patients? Yeah, it's it's very relevant. We've seen this emerge in other tumor types where pdl one a CPS score or TPS score, depending on the solid tumor, informs immunotherapy treatment or response. We don't have that established in the endometrial cancer space. We did collect PDL1 status on these patients, but that is an exploratory secondary endpoint. So we'll report on that as an exploratory assessment, but it wasn't done in a way that could validate, you know, a, a prospective assignment of a, of a treatment strategy. But it's a great question, and it's an area that we are actually going to we're going to analyze that data as part of the trial and then report on it as well in the future. Great. This this uh, this next question actually comes from several of our fellows. Next week, I'm actually interviewing uh, Mansoor Mirza, who I know you know very well, uh, regarding the Ruby trial. So their question is, based on your experience, uh, which treatment would you prefer for patients with uh, uh, MMR deficient or MMR proficient endometrial carcinoma, pembrolizumab, or dostarlamab, uh, which are the main differences that you would highlight between this trial and the Ruby trial? Yeah, it's such a good question that many people are asking. And I, I wish I had concrete <laughs> evidence to say, do this for this reason, but unfortunately I don't. I will say one of the best things about how this data came out in my mind is we had two trials similar patient populations. Of course, the studies were a little bit different, reporting out findings that add a lot of confidence, definitely in the DMMR patient population where the hazard ratios were identical, 0.28 and 0.3 in the curves, basically at 12 months, they're linear. So you're, these patients don't look like they're recurring who respond. So I will say, I'll answer this in, in two pieces. The first part is 
dostarlumab and pembrolizumab are both anti-PD-1s. They're not anti-PD-1 and anti-PDL1 where we can maybe hypothesize. They both have approved indications by the FDA in mismatch repair deficient solid tumors or endometrial cancer that's DMMR. So I'm not sure I could say biologically that there's one reason to think one will outperform the other. Um, I know, you know, pembrolizumab has many approved indications, of course, as we're all aware. And so it may be just uh, familiarity uh, and use and comfort with, with the medication. In my mind, you know, I think about, well, what about the PMMR population? Well, the studies were designed differently and Mansoor will, I'm sure, elaborate on Ruby. Ruby was a step-down analysis and wasn't specifically powered to statistically answer the question in the PMMR patients. Mm. So the PMMR signal and the PMMR results in GY018 with a hazard ratio of 0.54 may inform how a regulatory agency is going to view the opportunity to use this combination in a PMMR, what we call biomarker negative patient. I think time will tell. But of course, we can also look at Ruby and say Ruby enrolled carcinosarcomas, GY018 did mm. not. Um, they capped it at 10% in Ruby, so it's a small number, and the vast majority of those are in the PMMR. And again, that wasn't statistically analyzed independently. So how do we extrapolate that? Can we make sense of that or not? I, I don't know. I, I, I won't be able to speak to that. But I will say that I think at the end of the day, my hope is that we get regulatory approval. I think definitely in the DMMR. And my hope is that GY018 will give us approval in the PMMR population with the hazard ratio that we have um, and the statistical robustness of the investigation. And then if we do, we'll be able to move this to the front line and offer our patients uh, honestly, a, a provocative and effective treatment opportunity. Great. Um, Teresa Pan from Austria, she's asking, and, and I'm sure this this potentially is a question that may come up with uh, patient discussion. Um, given these results, would you consider it necessary to test for MMR deficiency when planning on adding pembrolizumab to your therapy? Yeah, I think absolutely. Uh, and I think that's for two reasons. One is we know clearly the magnitude of benefit is different. Uh, so we test for MMR deficiency in the tumor for many reasons. One is we're testing because if a patient is mismatch repair deficient, then we need to do the appropriate investigation, promoter hypermethylation. And if it's not present, then germline testing, because we want to identify Lynch syndrome patients, of course, because of implications for the patient, for other solid malignancies and their family members. So definitely, definitely, we don't ever want to stop doing mismatch repair IHC for that reason. Also, because the magnitude of benefit is different. And when I counsel a patient, I want to be able to tell them, honestly, listen, I expect that you may be cured from your recurrent disease, or at least have a very prolonged remission. Um, or I want to be more honest and say, listen, there's a, a benefit here, but it's unclear what duration of benefit we may achieve. There's a meaningful reduction in the risk of progression but I need to be thoughtful about what we might expect in the future. And in addition to that, informing other opportunities. You know, the road is not going to stop in immunotherapy plus chemo, even in the PMMR patients. We're mm -hmm. going to hopefully evolve and ask novel, novel questions and look at new combinations or alternate treatment strategies. And we want all of this information as we inform our patients about what clinical trial they may be able to enroll on and what combinations we can explore. So my message to that is absolutely keep testing for MMR in your patients and also NGS because not all endometrial cancers are the same. And we want to identify those patients based on molecular characterization, again, to drive and keep moving the science forward. Yeah. And this, this brings us to the next question, Arthur Xu uh, in Taiwan. He's asking, uh, 
regarding exactly that, the testing of MMR status. And, and he points to the fact that in 223 patients that centrally were determined to be MMR deficient uh, had been locally identified as uh, MMR proficient, 7.6%. And the, the, the opposite was also true. Um, how did this discrepancy happen and how can one prevent this from, from this scenario? Yeah, it's, it's, that was an intent of the trial. So one of the things that we wanted to look at is concordance between local and central MMR IHC. Um, thankfully, it is strongly concordant given the size of the trial. So it's a small percentage of patients that had a discordance. The reality is discordance can happen for many reasons. It can happen because of the expertise locally to perform the 22C3 IHC. It can happen because maybe locally they're not doing 22C3 IHC. There's different immunohistochemistry platforms that can be used to look at uh, expression um, of uh, PDL1, for example. Here, when we're looking at MMR, it should be uniform. Uh, but when we're talking about the MMR IHC expression locally, it may be misinterpreted, it may be uninterpreted. So some of the results, the central, or excuse me, the local pathologist could not define whether or not there was MMR expression or loss. And then the central could define loss of expression. Um, and so for those reasons, it was important to adjudicate the correlation. I will say that the trial was also designed so that the central is what allocated the patient in statistical analysis. So when it was done, we used the central. The very tail end of the protocol in April, a few months before study completed accrual, we had a protocol amendment because the concordance was so strong to allow for local assignment for randomization, but we mandated that central still had to be collected so we can adjudicate the relationship. So it's a good question. There's never going to be 100% concordance, but it was really, really close in the DMMR, and only 7% in the PMMR was discordant. Um, and of course, this information will be used when we start to have conversations about approval of this regimen and whether or not we can use local IHC to define eligible patients uh, if need be. Yeah, and further adds validity to the value of studies that, that actually do that, do that central evaluation as well. Um, next question from Arthur is, uh, some studies have suggested MLH1 methylation is a poorer subgroup in the MMR deficient group. Uh, was this tested? And could we anticipate further data on this subgroup? Yes, absolutely. So it was tested. We're actually doing the data cleaning for that right now so that we can understand better the mutated versus epigenetically silenced. And then we're going to report out on the responses. I will say that that's an area, there's a lot of debate still in that area. And, you know, the Garnett trial, they did report out a, a subset analysis looking at epigenetically silenced versus mutated. Now, they didn't truly report on promoter hypermethylation, but if there was no mutation in MLH1 and there was loss of MLH1 and PMS2, it was inferred to be promoter hypermethylation. And they saw similar response rates with dostarlimab, whether or not it was mutated or epigenetically silenced. Now, that being said, there was a poster at SGO, which looked at survival outcomes a little bit different, although there was a lot of limitations in that data. And there was a paper by Alejandro Santin and his colleagues uh, looking at, it was a small cohort of patients, I think 24 total patients, that suggested there may be a difference in the immune microenvironment, whether you're a promoter methylated or mutated. So mm. I'm thrilled because I think we're going to be able to put this issue to rest when we get the data from these two really large trials, Ruby and 018. Um, and my hunch is that we're not going to see a big difference. And the reason I say that is 80% of mismatch repair deficiency in clinical practice is from promoter hypermethylation. 
And mm. when you see these really dramatic PFS curves in both of these trials, the vast majority of that benefit is an epigenetic promoter hypermethylated patient. So we'll see what the data finally, you know, ultimately shows. And I'm I'm happy that we did collect it and are analyzing it, but I'm not I'm not convinced that we'll see the same results that we saw in some retrospective studies in this large prospective trial. Very well. So now um, Anissa Mburu from uh, Kenya, she, she wants to talk a little bit about toxicity and the, the profile for these patients. Um, she was asking specifically about the side effects related to thyroid function. And she was asking, um, did you routinely evaluate this uh, in the pre-drug administration or only after the symptoms develop? Uh, what should be our practice if implementing this type of therapy? Yeah. Very, very good question. Um, I will say that absolutely every patient who was treated on NRGGY018 had to have thyroid function tests done pre-initiation of treatment and then with each cycle of therapy, just like we do with immunotherapy. If you look at the mismatch repair deficient patient population, it was super interesting. Why? Because in the placebo arm, we had 9% hypothyroidism. And in the PEMBRO arm, we had 12% hypothyroidism. So what it shows me is that we probably and historically are treating a lot of patients who just are inherently hypothyroid without being clinically symptomatic. Um, and so you're not checking their TSH routinely on trial and you don't know. So absolutely, you're going to check for thyroid function tests when you use immune checkpoint inhibition. Hypothyroidism is a common treatment-related adverse event. In the mismatch repair deficient, it was about 12% of patients. In the mismatch repair proficient, it was 13% of patients who received pembrolizumab. Um, thankfully, again, if you look at the tornado plots that were reported and uh, in the supplement, and of course the tables in the paper, and you can see also the tornado plots in the presentation from SGO, but there was no concerning new immune-related signals identified in either patient population, PMMR or DMMR, with incorporation of pembrolizumab, which was really uh, quite reassuring. Okay. Um, next question comes from uh, Nuria Agusti. Um, she says uh, the rainbow trial is evaluating the role of duralumab uh, compared to radiotherapy alone. However, this current trial suggests the combination of PEMBRO and cytotoxic chemotherapy might result in clinically significant improvement in progression-free and overall survival. Do you think that the rainbow trial will help us to clarify more on the role of chemotherapy in this specific patient population of primary advanced disease? Yeah, I think so. And I think the beauty of the rainbow trial is we've moved from historically lumping all of these endometrial cancers together. And this goes to the comment about mismatch repair testing and NGS. And now we're being much more uh, prescriptive about what is the molecular characterization of your tumor to inform trial design and study questions. And the rainbow trial is a wonderful example of using the molecular classifications to inform randomization. So I think it's gonna be a great study that's gonna to continue to inform our opportunities for therapy across the different molecular subgroups and will add some strength specifically to the immunotherapy question, absolutely. Okay. Um, Andrea Rosati from uh, Gemelli Hospital in, uh, in Rome, he asks, considering both the results of this study and a keynote 775 in the recurrent uh, MMR proficient population, what are the major determinants for deciding between chemotherapy plus pembrolizumab versus pembro and lenvatinib? Yeah. So, you know, our 018 was designed in a patient population that theoretically wouldn't be eligible for combination lenvatinib and pembro because lenvatinib and pembro was done in a recurrent 
previously treated patient population who had one to two prior lines of therapy. And then in addition, it was a randomization to physician's choice chemo alone. There is a, a, the LEAP trial, which is asking about the combination of lenvatinib and pembrolizumab versus carboplatin and paclitaxel in a newly diagnosed uh, chemotherapy-naive endometrial cancer patient population. Uh, we, are, we don't know what the results of that study will show, but of course, then the question becomes, well, how do you adjudicate carboplatin, paclitaxel plus pembro versus lenvatinib plus pembro? I will tell you that it, we're probably going to, to some degree, look at all this data and try to make sense of it and cross-trial compare, even though we're not supposed to. Uh, but the question really becomes, if we have approval of uh, pembrolizumab in combination with carboplatin and paclitaxel on the front line in both the DMMR and the PMMR populations, what happens at progression? Because lenvatinib and pembro wasn't studied in patients who progressed after prior immune checkpoint inhibition. And so we're going to have a new gap in our therapeutic uh, armamentarium, and we're going to have to design trials to ask questions in that space so that we can have effective treatment strategies for the patients if they progress on checkpoint plus chemotherapy. Yeah, that's an interesting point. Um, Anissa Mburu also asked uh, regarding chemotherapy de-escalation. Um, she uh, questions, as this study shows a clear benefit of pembrolizumab with concurrent chemotherapy, would you uh, comment on the future possibility of chemotherapy de-escalation in patients receiving concurrent immunotherapy for endometrial cancer? Yeah, <laughs> you know, every when we we learn, you you know, what is the the phrase? Uh, you don't know what you don't know. And I think initially when we designed this trial, we didn't design a pembro only arm in the mismatch repair deficient patient population. Theoretically, to have a pure answer, you would have to have Pembro alone versus Pembro plus chemo versus, and then Pembro maintenance versus the standard of care. And we didn't do that. And the question is, does chemo add anything? Um, we have the C93 clinical trial, which is a Merck-sponsored study that's looking at Pembrolizumab monotherapy versus carboplatin and paclitaxel in a DMMR patient population. But again, that's not Pembro versus Pembro plus chemo. So I will say once more, we're going to find ourselves in a space where we're going to look at the data when C93 is done accruing and we have results and then make a decision. Um, interestingly, in uh, colorectal cancer, they looked at checkpoint alone versus chemo alone. They didn't incorporate chemo plus checkpoint. So we did things a little bit differently in the endometrial cancer space. Um, and if you look at the the progression-free survival curves in Keynote 177, which is the colorectal trial, in the beginning, you can actually see that the chemo appears to outperform checkpoint. So mm -hmm. maybe chemo in the beginning kind of brings those curves together. And then, of course, the checkpoint is going to do your long-term remission. We This is me hypothesizing. Yeah. I, don't know. <laughs> I don't think we're ever going to run that trial, to be honest, because it would have to be a non-inferiority design. And given the benefit of that we have from these two trials, Ruby and 018 and a hazard ratio of 0.3 and the progression-free events being so uncommon, it would be you know 1,200 patients and it would take a very long time to read out the results. So yeah. I think we're fortunate to have the option. We'll see how C93 reads out and then the Dominica is analogous uh, with Dostarlimab. Uh, and then we'll be able to make a decision as providers with our patients and use the data to inform that conversation. But either way, I don't think we're going to be doing our patients any wrong because the magnitude of benefit is likely to be dramatic in that biomarker population.
Great. So Ramesh, two, two more questions. This is more so sort of like getting your crystal ball and uh, and predicting the future. One of them is from uh, Jennifer Davis-Olivera uh, in the UK, and she asks, how do you see immunotherapy changing in the treatment of endometrial cancer in the future? And is there a place for this early in endometrial cancer for patients where surgery is contraindicated? Yeah, so, so good. Interestingly, there are a cohort of patients accrued on this trial who never had surgery. So mm -hmm. 018 had, and if I, I don't quote me on the percent, but I think it was about 10% of patients, uh, maybe a little more than that, who never had surgery because they had widely metastatic disease at presentation and who benefited. You know, we're going to go back and look at these subpopulations to really define what the, the benefit may be. But yeah, in a patient who's not fit for surgery, particularly who's biomarker positive, 100%, um, if there's approval, you could use a regimen like this. And then, of course, if you have patients, uh, you know, the real question, the provocative question is, can you use a therapy like this systemically to negate surgery? Um, and I think that's more controversial. And the reason I say that is because in uterine cancer that's confined and resectable, Surgery is a one-time initiative. You, you're done, you remove the disease and you don't require multiple treatments. While systemic therapy, of course, has cost and life implications because patients come in for infusions over time, lab work, et cetera. Um, I think where immunotherapy is gonna live ultimately is of course gonna depend on how the regulatory agencies uh, for in the, in the US and the EU and other areas view this data. Meaning is the FDA and the EMA, are they gonna look at this and say, okay, the DMMR, absolutely, we're going to get an approval. Well, the PMMR, we have to review the data thoughtfully and see what it shows and then make a decision. If we get an approval in both, I imagine that we're going to start to see immunotherapy now move up in the stage three, stage four patients so that we can use it um, in the newly diagnosed adjuvant setting. And then there's yet another trial, uh, B21, which is looking at the completely resected low-risk stage three patients, which were actually weren't enrolled on GY018 and if you look at Ruby, the completely resected non-measurable is actually a very small population of the patients enrolled on that trial. So we're really going to lean on B21 to tell us, does immunotherapy help in those patients? Just like we see it help in the advanced stage metastatic in GY018 and Ruby, uh, looking at IO plus, plus chemo. And Ramis, there's a last question from uh, the fellows, uh, Ryan Conant, uh, who's at Memorial Sloan Kettering in New York. Um, he says, we're likely years out from obtaining efficacy data of immunotherapy in recurrent setting following chemotherapy plus immunotherapy in the frontline setting. How do you foresee this shaping out in the future? Yeah, I think this is the unanswered question. So if we have approval and we begin to use this regimen, then we're going to very quickly design clinical trials to inform what we do next. And those may be immunotherapy plus alternate immunotherapeutic treatment strategies. For example, you know, the GY025 is a clinical trial that's accruing looking at NEVO alone versus IPI-NEVO, so anti-PD-1 versus anti-PD-1 plus anti-CTLA-4. That is allowing prior immunotherapy, but you have to have at least 12 months off. That's very different than someone who progressed on immunotherapy. But we're going to be forced to ask these questions. Is it an IO combination? Is it IO alone? Is it IO plus TKI after IO? Is it a whole separate paradigm uh, of, you know, abandoned immune checkpoint inhibition post-progression and now look at alternate treatment strategies? Um, it's, this is why we're, we're having this conversation. So the brilliant minds out there who are much <laughs> smarter than I, who are listening, 
are going to come up with the ideas uh, that we need to ask these questions uh, and answer them if we ultimately are able to move this into the front line. Ramis, this has been a really fantastic discussion. I'll just, uh, one last question for the patient that comes in on Monday and says, I read your article, so I want that. I want carbotaxel Pembro, uh, regardless of what my status is. Uh, what are you going to say to that patient? Uh, it's it's a tough conversation because you sp I, sp I speak so passionately about the efficacy, and then I have to tell the patient that right now we don't have an FDA approval. Um, so I say, listen, we're, it's under review, uh, you know, or I should say that th hopefully things will be under review and submitted for consideration by the regulatory authorities. And this may be a new standard of care. Until that time, it's difficult. Um, we may not get approval to use this combination, uh, although it's it's not an easy conversation because in the same breath, the patient says, hey, aren't you telling me that this is more effective by this degree? I, I want the most effective therapy. Um, so it's a shared decision. It's a conversation that I've had with patients. If I can get access to it and, and the patient strongly desires it, great. If they're eligible for a trial that's doing it again, we'll talk about it, of course, to see if we have access. But yes, you know, Pedro, it's it's in a, a very difficult position to be in when you have such provocative data, but you're waiting on an approval to move it forward. Exactly. So Ramez, congratulations once again. Thank you so, so much. This has been really uh, a very informative discussion. I really enjoyed listening to you and and, and learned so much from speaking with you. Um, uh, congratulations to all of your co-authors. Uh, this is really a remarkable work. Uh, lots of lots of patients, and then of course, obviously, thank you to all the patients who who participated. Um, thank you once again for accepting our invitation. Thank you for having me. It was an absolute pleasure. And yes, I echo the, the thanks to the patients, the site investigators, and a really tremendous team that I was fortunate enough to work with for 018. So it was a pleasure, Pedro. Thank you for your time.